talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Will Weber in for Scott's son. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. On the board is yours truly. Omicron is moving on. It's time for us to do the same instead of dividing everyone. Here's Scott Thompson! Yeah! Yes! Yes! Woo! Hey, Thompson! You're fired! You're gone. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, that was a very good job, Will. Will was uh, sent that task with literally, literally 30 seconds to go because uh, I'm sitting here waiting for uh, Kurt's intro to arrive, but unfortunately it's not arriving, uh, and neither is Kurt to do it. So, uh, so Mom, wh- 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 where's the boy? Why, yeah, what's going on here? Oh, he's with some friends studying for a science test. He's what? He's with some friends studying for a science test. Am I buying that? Are you buying that? I don't know. It, uh... Studying instead of being on the radio? Come on. Get your priorities in order, Kurt. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't even go there. Uh, so anyway, um, you know, sorry. We're, uh, and, you know, just oddly enough, I got a comment, an email. I'm, oh, that's going to make him feel guilty. I got an email today from a listener saying how much they loved his intro. And uh, I said, look, look, buddy, you're going to let these people down here. But Will's stepping in and knocking it out of the park. Thank you, Will, on such short notice. Anytime. And, and uh, the boy will be grounded. No. Oh, no, it's not like I pay the kid. I mean, you know, come on. It's, uh, well, it's sort of room and board thing, but we'll discuss that later. All right. It is uh, Hamilton today. It is 3.09. I'm Scott Thompson, Will Weber on the board. And in the newsroom watching the world spin around is Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. They'll be joining us around the big round table coming up after the 4.30 news. Hang on for that. Uh, should be another interesting one and uh, a pretty cool show, too, coming up. Hope you hang around for it. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's interesting. We're in interesting times. We're in interesting times right now. And and uh, an interesting Angus Reid poll uh, that uh, that has come out today uh, in regard to where our heads are. And four to five Canadians saying uh, that, you know, fully vaccinated, boosted, whatever, uh, they're not concerned about Omicron. And we've been talking about this since we returned from the Christmas holidays. Uh, I really think the attitude is changing on this. Uh, simply because everybody has known somebody who has gone through it. And, of course, it's not pleasant, as none of this stuff ever is. Uh, some certainly more serious than others, and we do not need, uh, uh, mean to underplay that in any way. Uh, but, again, we're moving on, as the scientists predicted two years ago, as this is slowly becoming an endemic, and we have an incredible amount of Canadians that are vaccinated. And congratulations and good for you, and keep up the fight so um you know with that it's let's get on with it as the intro said i mean uh again we have to keep the protocol in place we have to uh do this gradually i mean nobody's saying hey it's new year's eve here we go jump into the daisies naked uh but you know again i i think it's time to really stop the fear-mongering i think it's time to stop the divisiveness I mean, you know, everybody's concerned about a, a pile of truckers rolling across, uh, you, you know, Canada, uh, which is just a bizarre situation in itself, simply because the U.S. has the same rules. So it doesn't matter if Canada agrees to it or not, unless you're going to get the U.S. on board. And let's remember that the vast majority, just like every Canadian, is vaccinated.
vaccinated. And so, you know, uh, with that, uh, to me, it's a moot point. On the other hand, uh, how many times, like, you, you know, there's the last 10% of the population. You know, you're never going to vaccinate 100% of the population. Can we please move on? You know, there's going to be so many that just uh, are fearful and can't or won't. There's going to be anti-vaxxers. There's those that can't for medical or even religious reasons. So why do we keep dividing the country over things like convoys and the last 5% that are vaccinated? Like, honestly, science is moving on. It's time for us to move on as well. And you know what? 90% of the population vaccinated is pretty good darn good some of the best in the country you want to you want to focus on something focus on beefing up our 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 crumbling health care system instead of patting ourselves on the back about how great it is what's great is the health care workers that have bailed us out of this mess now let's support them and stop yelling at the last five percent of the population ten percent of the population who you will never get vaccinated anyway but you know what this is all about it's not about covid it's not about getting everybody vaccinated it's not even about taking goods across the border it's about deviating your attention uh, away from the politicians who are in charge of making such decisions and dragging these things out and again what needs to be happening right now between the provinces and the prime minister is a discussion about a funding formula uh, for our crumbling health care system much like they're talking about ten dollar a day daycare which I'm sure the federal government will step back on just like they stepped back on Medicare years and years and years ago. So come on, let's have these discussions. Let's stop screaming about the fringe areas of the population, the extremes on the left or the right, and let's move on. It's been two years with COVID-19. We are vaccinated. We are boosted. We have had it in some cases. So enough i mean who cares if they're driving trucks across the country who cares if the last five to ten percent are not popular are not vaccinated nobody is show me anywhere where there's a hundred percent vaccination rate in anything and yes even the kids that are going into our schools are not a hundred percent vaccinated although we somehow seem to think that they are so again We've done an incredible job at getting the population vaccinated and boosted. And we should be really, really proud of that. But we should really be embarrassed about what we're doing in regard to dividing people over, you know, this or or that or getting vaccinated or not. We're, We're there. We're there. We're moving on. And the healthcare system's getting better as well. It's leveling out. So let's talk about fixing it. Let's talk about fixing it instead of thinking that, you know, whenever we have 600 people in ICU in a province of 15, I'll give you, I'll be 14 and a half million people. And you put 600 people in ICU and you've crippled the the healthcare system. That's what we need to be talking about. 600 people in ICU and we're crippling our healthcare system in a province of 14 and a half million people. And it's no different in British Columbia. It's no different in Alberta. It's no different in the Maritimes. That's what we need to be talking about. Not a bunch of truckers roaring across the country because five or 10% of the population is never going to get vaccinated. 
So can we stop the politicians from distracting us with this garbage? And can we just move on with our lives? We've done everything you've asked. We're fully vaccinated. Let's move on with care and caution and common sense. That song that uh, that Will was playing uh, just a second ago is a song that I used to use when I first came back to CHML, uh, back to 875 Main Street West, um, 16, 17 years ago. I got to get that math right. You know, it's COVID. Everybody's off a couple of years. There's a couple of years that didn't count there as they just sort of, you know, stop the globe uh so uh and at that time when i was uh venturing into the world of talk radio from rock radio or whatever the heck i was doing then um uh jim carrier was at chml at the time and uh by far well the best producer at the time uh was jim carrier he was he was a senior guy there and uh was so good that even if i was away jim would do the show and uh and and was instrumental in helping me adapt from music radio to talk radio and 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 very much held my hand uh uh most of the time and then one day he said i'm leaving <laughs> and uh man uh he embarked on a career that uh he has just celebrated the 10th anniversary of it's his 10th anniversary with god uh the reverend jim carrier is with us good shepherd church in st Catharines, and with us now jim how are you i hope you're doing well i'm great scott thank you now to be fair um i didn't just leave i mean there was a process involved and it involved the uh, support of you and of uh, Jeff and the whole staff and uh, Bob Sherwin, even earlier on, the late yeah. Bob Sherwin, who just kind of uh, got behind me in this process as I went into seminary and uh, started uh, this transition into a life in ministry. So I didn't just snap out of it. I didn't just one day say goodbye that it was a process. And I appreciate everyone's support there at CHML and helping me get there. How long did the journey take when you first started? Because uh, I know you just sort of did this uh, part time as far as your studies and such, and then ramped it right up. Yeah, I was. Uh, I guess uh, three to four years. I was. Uh, I was part time. Actually, closer to five. Five years. I was part time, uh, one course per semester, and uh, and working still full time at uh, at CHML. And, uh, and then the p- final two years, I took a full course, a full-time course, 80% course load, and still continued to work full-time at, uh, at CHML. But I wanted to accomplish all of this uh, while I was still 50, so, uh, and I did that. So, Wow, and it's been 10 years. It's been 10 years since ministry, yeah, well, since I left uh, CHML and, uh, and uh, took on a position as an associate clergy at Good Shepherd in St. Catharines, and uh, a couple of years later, I uh, I was invited uh, by the congregation there to serve them as their rector, and uh, that I've been doing ever since. So, yeah. So, uh, th- there's a couple of interesting aspects to this story. Um, how difficult was it to make this decision? Because it is a career change, and lots of people do that. And you pointed out at 50, uh, you wanted to have it done by 50, or, or a new direction by 50. How difficult is it to make that decision? 
Well, it, I think I struggled with it for a long time. And, um, and I think that, that God was sort of, sort of pushing me along in those first, uh, first four or five years in seminary, because I only originally went to seminary just to find out a bit more about my faith. I wasn't actually thinking about the ministry at all as a full-time thing, but over the, you know, just ahead of, of the, of the two years that I spent full-time, uh, I really got a nudging from God that this is, that this is what I, what I wanted to do, um, and what I've been called to do. Uh, so it came with some risks, and 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 so it. I, I wouldn't say that it was an easy decision, but it was certainly made easy in my confidence that God will fulfill me and provide what I needed if He's calling me to serve His church. Did you ever question the decision? No, no, hmm. no, not at all. No. What advice do you have for those? And again, obviously, you went from uh, you know being in the media to now. Uh, in charge of the Good Shepherd Church in St. Catharines, um, that's still a huge career change, uh, no matter which way you look at it. And yes. and for many of us are thinking, you know, we should have followed you in the same footsteps for for, for us all to be saved, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> what, uh, but what advice do you have for someone who's, because there's lots of people, especially after or during a, a global pandemic, have said, you know what, time for change. What advice do you have for them? Uh, well, first of all, uh, just to point out that uh, you don't have to go into full-time ministry in order to believe in God. That uh, that once you are to be saved, I think is the word you used. But once you have faith in God, you're saved. So you don't have excuse, to necessarily excuse my ignorance, Jim. No, no, I'm just saying that because if that if that were the case, then then we would all be scrambling for jobs because it would be just completely packed. So, um, yeah. So. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I'd, I've forgotten what your question was, Scott. Advice for those that are thinking of a career change at this point. Um, of, of a career change specifically into ministry? No, it, just a change in life. You made a, a gigantic okay, career okay, yeah. in life change. That's difficult for people to do, especially at midlife. What advice do you have for those that are thinking, especially post-COVID, you know, ah, I need a change, I need something? Um, you know, and in, in contemplating a change in their life, similar to the one you made. Sure. Well, I think that a lot of people go through that kind of change. Some people call it a midlife crisis. Uh, I was a little later in terms of, of, of chronology. Um, but I think that, uh, that if you're being pulled in a direction to change a career or to do something different, that that comes out of the, out of the feeling deep inside you uh, especially when you reach a particular age and you kind of think, well, I haven't really accomplished much or I've accomplished enough here. I can't go any further here. And so you search for a different meaning or a different purpose and you, and you seek that out in what you do and, and in your career. So, so my encouragement would be, my advice would be, would, would be to follow those instincts. And, uh, and then if you have an opportunity to move on, not necessarily that you're unhappy where you are, but just that you that you've found something or have a desire to do something that may be more fulfilling to you or to other people, then, then to stick with that, just kind of go with that feeling and nurture it and investigate it and think about it and do your research about whatever it is you're looking forward to. Um, and then once you've made that commitment, it's, I'm not going to say that it comes easier, but once you've made that commitment, you certainly do have the resolve and the determination to move forward and to make whatever change you want to make. Always keeping in mind the hope that's in the end of the process. So 
I had to go to seminary. I went to university and a master's course, having never been to university ever before. So that was a challenge for me. And it was, uh, it was at, at some, at sometimes a bit of a struggle, but, uh, but I just kept that, that end goal in mind. And so I think that if you're thinking of a, of a career change or a choice or even retirement or whatever, just keep those goals hmm. in mind as you struggle through some of the difficult times in that process. Reverend Jim Carrier, Good Shepherd Church in uh, St. Catharines. Take a peek at his Facebook page, uh, celebrating 10 years. Congratulations, Jim. Great to hear from you. Be well. Thank you, Scott. God bless. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I want to bring in Don Fox, IG Private Wealth Management. And, uh, of course, you can listen to his show every Saturday mornings uh, here on CHML at 8 a.m. Man, we have been talking about uh, interest rates and, and and how long before they start to creep upward for uh, I don't know how long. Uh, and, obviously, the Bank of Canada has opted not to raise its benchmark interest rate today, but is suggesting that next time it's going to be a different story. Don Fox is with us now. Don, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, all good, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for how, me. How historic is this in the sense that, you know, it's been years, Don, that we've been talking about, gee, when are the rates going to go up? And then all of a sudden that became the new norm. Are, are, we, are we entering a period where obviously we're going to start to see some jumps? Yes. In fact, if anything, money, if you were a betting man, you would have guessed that it was going to be today. Yeah. Um, 70% of uh, economists thought they were were going to increase the interest rates by a quarter percent today. In fact, they thought the same was going to happen in the U.S. And, and it looks like both uh, both sides of the border has held pat on the interest rates so far. But that being said, there's there, there's certainly alluding, and many said, well, what's the difference between what you're talking about today and what you talked about last time? And and the Bank of Canada basically said, well, next time they're going up. Is that yeah? They, they is that much what to take from warning. this? It's definitely going back up in in March. So, uh, any idea how much or how many of these we'll see? I mean, I read somewhere, man, they're talking about maybe a half a dozen of these uh, in succession. What are your thoughts on that, on the speed and and how high will it uh, jump at each rate? Well, it's kind of interesting. If you think back before this pandemic, it's almost, you know, it seems like a long time ago because we've been kind of languishing in this, but the Bank of Canada rate was Mm 1.75. And so now, and then it dropped as soon as this uh, kind of pandemic started hitting us, it dropped from 1.75 to 1.25 and then to 0.75 and then to 0.25. And that's where it's been. Yeah. And that, that happened in like light speed. That was March 3rd. There was a decrease and then March 15th and then March 26th. So it went down, you know, one and a half percent in a period of a month, which has never happened. And, and I, rem- and I remember... That- I remember you saying too that um, that uh, that these that prior to the pandemic they were certainly on their way up. I mean that's what we were projecting in the next six months, six months or so. They were on their way up, and then boom, the pandemic hit. Absolutely, and and you know a good indicator with that is is the the longer term mortgage rates, and they were starting to creep up. And what that means is when they're trying to guess which way the interest rates are going. And, you've, and you notice the same thing has happened with the five-year interest rates now. You know, it wasn't long ago, they're 1.7% for a five-year mortgage. Now they're about 2.8% for a five-year mortgage when you start to negotiate with the bank. So they're guessing they're going to go up. It's just a matter of time. And just for the listener's sake, the difference from a bank rate and how, how does that affect you? 
because nobody's getting 0.25%. That mm-hmm. the bank rate is what the government is or the Bank of Canada is lending to the banks. Well, what that means to you is it, that is in a direct relationship to the prime lending rate. And that's what all your line of credits are based on and what your say a variable rate mortgage is, is based on. So going back to uh, you know March 2nd, 2020, the prime lending rate was 3.95 and mm. it's dropped to 2.45. Again, a one and a half percent decrease in lockstep with the bank rate dropping back you know when the pandemic first hit so we expect the same thing happen if the bank rate goes up by a quarter percent the banks will increase the prime rate immediately so obviously the tide is changing albeit not today uh what do you what advice do you have for people moving forward what do we what's the fallout of this going to be well you know you should really plan for an increase so if you've been thinking, okay, I've got this uh, five-year mortgage and it's going to come come due in three years and you've got this fantastic rate of under 2%, then you say, okay, I, I may have to either have increases in my pay to make mortgage payments down the road or have a slush fund to make sure that you can afford this when it comes up for renewal because you will not be getting, already you can't get those those inexpensive rates. So you I, you will you know be definitely prepared or you may have to you know uh, reduce your lifestyle because uh, it, it's on the way. And for those people that have line of credits and they, they'll happen immediately or, or mm, variable yeah. rate mortgages. So if you have a variable rate mortgage and there's some, there were some great deals like prime less a 1%. So a 2.45% prime less 1%, you're paying only 1.45% on a, on a, on a variable rate mortgage. Well, that could easily go right to, you know, be, you know pre-pandemic rates of 395 which is, you know, quite a significant increase in your payments every month. So how often can they raise these rates? How much do you think they'll go up each time? And of course, you can't answer that question. I'm asking you. Answer, <laughs> you I'm, my I'm asking you. Here, exactly. I know that. But, um, you know, trying to get a gauge of this, is it is it going to take off? I mean, are we expecting like a quarter point jump each time? Uh, some have said six times. Others have said four. Any idea? Well, what, what, what are the options? Let's ask you that instead. Okay. Well, I, I don't think it will happen the way they went down. And because that was an emergency, right. uh, the pandemic hit, and they were trying to say, let's help everybody out as fast as we can. And they had, you know, three interest rate decreases in a period of a month. Yeah, so that yeah. just, and they don't have meetings every week to decrease or increase interest rates. So the next meeting is until till March. So, you know, we've got a, a couple months. And my, my guess you're purely a guess is a quarter percent rise and then another two months later wouldn't be shocked to see them up a quarter percent again and I, I i suspect they'll go by a quarter percent at a time whether it's four times in the next um year which would be my guess rather than the six but you know six is a little of alarming that would get us right back to the pre-pandemic rates um they're really trying to keep inflation in check and 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 having low interest rates actually fuels the inflation because people can borrow at cheap rates to keep buying goods. And it's basically a a supply and demand. So there's only so much supply. And if we can go and borrow money to buy more stuff, that, that, that increases demand. So the prices go up. So we're seeing inflation running very close to 5% right now. And so one tool is to increase interest rates. Will that do it right away? Absolutely not. It, it, It gets, it's slow to occur, but it does help. Many are concerned about double-digit interest rates. Any thoughts on that? we got a few seconds left. Ah, um, 
interest rate double digit i can't see that that would be a, a massive if you want to have a recipe for a recession that would be yeah actually i, I think you. you know it, the supply chain is the biggest issue right now and you know COVID has hurt that right across the whole world so the fact that we're having a hard time getting supply and yet the demand is is higher than ever that's right. what really is causing the um, inflation that we're having right now John Fox is with us, IG Private Wealth Management. And, of course, make sure you're listening on Saturday mornings for more on all of this on planning your financial future. Don, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yes, you too, Scott. All the best. Bye now. Lots of buzz uh, in it. Well, it's been an incredible uh, few months when you think about it. The Grey Cup, which, by the way, is coming again. Got the World Cup qualifier. You got the NHL outdoor game all coming. I mean, my goodness, it, what a great time to be in the hammer. And many would say out of all of this, out of those three, this is the best and the biggest event. Now, I don't want to start a fight with anybody, but uh, uh, we're talking about the World Cup qualifier. Tickets went on sale and were gone pretty much uh, as fast as they were on sale for Tim Hortons Field on Sunday. Now, again, it's COVID seating, uh, you know, COVID protocol capacity because of where we are, which is understandable. So uh, a few less than, um, you know, we would have liked to have had at it. But to talk about the event, Dr. Nick Bontis with us, business prof at McMaster University, keynote speaker, management consultant, entrepreneur, soccer player, and president of Canada Soccer, and is with us now. Nick, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to your listeners. And obviously, uh, to say you're excited would be an understatement. Your thought on the interest in this game, too bad it's not full capacity, but your thoughts on on the interest and the quick sellout. Yeah, I mean, first, obviously, as a Hamiltonian, you know, I wanted to bring it to my hometown. I'm very proud of the Hammer. You know, there's a reason why we refurbished Tim Hortons Field, you know, going back now four, five, six years ago, if you recall. It wasn't just for Pan Am. It just wasn't mm-hmm. just for the Hamilton Ticats. But one of the reasons why we did it was so that we could attract, you know, high-profile international events. And, you know, it doesn't get higher profile than World Cup qualification. It's a little bit unorthodox, yeah, because it's the middle of winter and there's snow and there's ice and it's going to be cold. But, you know what, this is part of the journey and, and the mystique of the Canadian men's national team. We had two games in Edmonton and what we affectionately termed as the ice Teca. Yeah. And we ended up beating uh, Mexico who we haven't beat in decades. So the Americans are coming. It's not a far trip across the border to, uh, to Hamilton. I'm excited. As you said, uh, tickets were sold within the hour. And to be honest, Scott, I mean, we could have had 150,000 mm. capacity at Tim Hortons field and tickets would have sold out. I mean, that that's how much buzz is surrounding the men's national team. Uh, you know, we are we, we have one foot in the door. I mean, John Herdman would kill me if I said this, but we are very, very close to qualifying for uh, for Qatar, which uh, you know everybody knows the World Cup is the biggest sporting event you know on on the planet, and we're going to be hosting in 26 anyway. So most people know we're going to be in it in 26, but to be in it now in 22 is such a massive opportunity for us. It'll, it, you know, it gives us a, a four-year window and a roadmap for growth of sport. And, uh, you know, I want to put Hamilton on the map, not just because we have crazy fans that love soccer, but also because if FIFA sees, you know, how supportive and how awesome mm. it is on Sunday, which, of course, they will, then Hamilton would be considered as a hosting city. Now, a hosting city is different than a host city because obviously we won't be hosting any official matches in 26, but a hosting city would be, for example, a country that would pick Hamilton as its home base. Could you imagine if Italy or Serbia or Greece decided to stay in Hamilton for 30 days during the World Cup, train every day at Tim Hortons Field, and have the stadium open for fans to watch? That would be an amazing thing. 
Lots of chatter when this ha- uh, happened. You were talking about the the Edmonton game and the conditions there and such. How did it end up in Hamilton? How 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 did this happen? So, I mean, obviously, part of it was uh, you know me supporting it, but most importantly, it's the technical staff that make the final decision. So, John Herdman and his staff—they are the final decision makers when it comes to where they want uh, games to be played in this country. And there's a lot of considerations and factors. Obviously, one of the main ones is the welfare of our players. Obviously, given the COVID environment, it's difficult to travel internationally. Mm. Most of our players, half the roster is flying in from Europe. So one of the challenges, people are wondering, well, why didn't you just play in Vancouver? Well, first of all, you know, BC Place is, is refurbishing their turf with brand new turf, so it wasn't necessarily available. But that extra flight, you know, flying from, let's say, Germany to Toronto and then going from Toronto to Vancouver and then back to Toronto, because don't forget, sandwiched in between our domestic game versus the U.S. on Sunday is a game in Honduras tomorrow and a game in El Salvador next Wednesday. So top of mind for Herdman and his staff were just the sheer number of kilometers that our players would be traveling. BMO Field has hybrid grass, so it's 50% real grass, 50% turf, and no real grass is going to grow in January. Yeah. Uh, potentially <laughs> Sky Dome. It's not called Sky Dome anymore. What's it called, Scott? Uh, the center, center. something know. center, yeah. Place? I don't yeah. know. Uh, so, the big, uh, the big only building got... with, by the highway, that one wasn't going to be an option either because it's not configured properly for FIFA soccer. The big convertible roof. Uh, what can yeah. we expect? We've only got about 30 seconds left. Sure. Tell us about this game. What can we expect on the weekend? So, obviously, there's a lot of intensity and rivalry between Canada and the U.S. Uh, two of our star players, unfortunately, will not be there. Alfonso Davies and Stefan Eustachio. You mentioned, you know, Elton John. Uh, you know, COVID is uh, rearing its ugly head. So, uh, you know, we've, we've got a strong roster. Um, you know, we want to win the game. It's our home fortress. We haven't lost at home. Um, and theoretically, after this three-match window, we could have our feet in the door at Qatar, and that would be a wonderful thing to be able to announce that we've made it to the World Cup before the actual qualification ends. Dr. Nick Bontis with us, McMaster University, and of course, President of Canada Soccer. Uh, congratulations. Quite a feat. We'll be watching. Uh, very exciting. Have fun. Enjoy the day, Nick. Thank you so much, everybody. All the best. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News Today's Talk. 900 CHML. We're talking about supply chain shortages, uh, have been for a while for various reasons, whether it's ships stuck in canals or convoys or, or what have you, or vaccine mandates or such. Um, but what is really happening and, and what is the state, the health of our food supply chain? Let's bring in Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, my pleasure. Yes, thank you. So we're certainly seeing a lot of, there's a lot of fog, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of politics. What is the state of our food chain, uh, food uh, supply chain at this point? How healthy is it? Where are the weaknesses? Uh, I would say it's good. I mean, overall, uh, I think uh, grocers, uh, food importers uh, are figuring out a way to to work with the system, uh, work with uh with uh, what's happening, also work with policy-induced obstacles, uh, if you know what I mean, and uh, they'll be able to find products. I mean, in the in the end, uh, grocers know that empty shelves are bad for business. I mean, they they will uh, try to stock up. 
uh, economic motives are real. Uh, they want to make money. They want to sell us products. Uh, the last thing they want is is for us to leave the store empty-handed. And so that will actually move things along the supply chain. But uh, access won't be an issue, but costs, uh, mm. we believe, will become an issue eventually. Yeah. So are we seeing empty shelves? Are there situations or are these an anomaly? Uh, what's interesting is that we've been seeing empty shelves for months now. I mean, mm. uh, really, uh, people just didn't see them. Uh, I was seeing them and I thought it was quite normal. Uh, I think the vaccine mandate issue at the border just politicized right. the issue of empty shelves, and which is why we're talking about it right now. So let's talk about that, Sylvain. Um, now, obviously, it's been a week in both sides, both America and Canada have the same uh, mandatory vaccine, so you can't go either direction. Uh, but they've been in place for a week or so. Is that having an effect on the supply chain or is there just a lot of smoke and mirrors there? Because, again, like most of the Canadian population, most of the truckers are uh, vaccinated. So is that slowing the supply chain down as if some had predicted? It, it, it eliminated a lot of options, to be honest. Uh, so mm-hmm. on the Canadian side, uh, we think anywhere between eight to 16,000 truckers uh, no longer qualify to uh, cross the border. On the American side, it's like 120,000. So obviously, freight costs uh, will have to go up. And uh, based on our estimates, uh, depending on what you're buying, where you're buying it, uh, uh, where is it going, um, it, freight costs may have increased by anywhere between 25 to 100%. So this is less about the product shortage and more about how much it's just going to cost to get it. Absolutely. Uh, so th- th- I've been I've been concerned. That that's been my concern since day one, especially right now, due with with the inflation rate we have, and the fact that we're in the middle of winter. Uh, if you remember the cauliflower incident a few years ago, uh, our 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 currency just tanked. Uh, in a matter of days, which forced importers to pay more for cauliflower, and cauliflower became uh, was priced yeah. at nine dollars uh, per head. All of a so, sudden, so is there anything that governments can do at this point from a policy standpoint? Because as you said, uh, there's a shortage of truckers before the pandemic. That's only been exacerbated. Uh, obviously, there's other supply chain issues around the world, whether not so much a shortage of product, but even absenteeism. Is there anything governments can do at this point to ease this? Or is this just something we've got to let, let go through the system? Um, so the, the food industry has, uh, has always done a fantastic job dealing with uh, things that, that were thrown at them, uh, essentially. And this is just one other thing, uh, especially during the pandemic. Uh, so the industry will continue to deliver. Uh, it, it is, it is going to be challenged. And, and frankly, as a consumer, if you're expecting perfection walking into a grocery store, uh, it would be unreasonable. Uh, you have to be realistic about uh, about your expectations. As for the government itself, um, I I was hoping for a delay of the vaccine mandates, uh, maybe until we're done with Omicron, because Omicron was a blow, was a huge blow to the food mm. industry, really. And we we're seeing it right now. 
but now it's in place. I mean, vaccine mandates are are enforced both sides of the border, and 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 I know I know that the industry will be able to cope with this new reality. And it really doesn't matter if one's closed and the other's open, and the other one's open and the other one's closed if they're not both doing the same thing. Well, let's say, for example, the convoy is successful in reversing our, our, our vaccine mandate at the border this weekend. Let's say that they actually do it. Uh, well, it, it would be worthless unless uh, Washington does the same thing on the other yeah. side. But even if, if we get rid of vaccine mandates right now, uh, transportation companies would, would need at least a month to get reorganized. Hmm. So and that would lead us into end of February, early March. So there's no, frankly, I I don't see the point. To be honest, Uh, I think this protest is is way more, uh, is much more uh, than than just about trades and food security. To be honest. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Doctor, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It is time to gather all of the kids around the big round table. Diana Weeks, Dave Woodard, and William Weber are joining us to talk about the issues of the day. Welcome, table heads. Good to have you all here. Hey, good afternoon. Indeed. Good afternoon. Thanks for having us. Hey, let's talk about Elton John. Are you surprised uh, he has it? Um, is Should we be surprised at this? Uh, because it appears many are. Diana, I'll start with you. Not really, because it seems like everyone's kind of getting some variation or form of, of COVID-19 nowadays. So, I mean, I had COVID. My husband had COVID. So, I mean, yeah, Elton John me now has COVID. Did you uh, give did? Elton John COVID? Uh, that, now, that is a more pertinent question. All right. All right. <laughs> Man, you should be writing these, Dave. All right. Let's start with that. Who gave uh, Elton John the uh, the COVID? Oh, speculation. Uh, uh, yes. Ooh, I love there it. There we go. Are people uh, are people uh, becoming more comfortable with this now? Do you think, Dave? People are. Uh, I think at one time people were. Oh, I don't want to say I've got it or I've had it. Now people are just. Yeah, yeah. Let's move on. I think most people have either had it or know people who have had it that are very close to them. So of course, like anything else, once it's you know uh, it's around enough, people get used to it. I mean, we don't. Uh, I don't think any of us two years ago thought that we'd be ever. Uh, used to talking about yeah. COVID, and here we are two years later, every day talking about COVID. So it's not it's not a surprise to me at all. That's a great uh, point too. Can you imagine if we were all sitting around talking? It was two years ago, and they're going to say, "Well, Danny, you're going to get it, and Scott, you're going to get it." And yeah, I mean, uh, now it's it's just a completely uh, different scenario, which well, we'll talk about it in a second. I mean, that that's uh, just what it's like talking to Roy Green. Not to pull the curtain back too far, but <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, poll question of the day: Surprise, Doug Ford said masks not going anywhere soon. Ninety percent of the poll said no. Uh, I'm not sure if we're surprised that masks aren't going anywhere or we're surprised that the premier has said it. Uh, and I guess this comes back to what he uh, they were talking about before Christmas, before Omicron and any of this stuff, where hopefully all of these restrictions would be dying down by uh, March. I think it's March 14th when the final stage, we're finally out of it. Um, but yeah, I, I guess many thought at that point it was rip the masks off and, and go. What are your thoughts, Diana? Are you surprised that masks aren't going anywhere soon? No, not 
really. I mean, yeah. I'm expecting we're going to be wearing these for a while to come. And, and I mean, rightfully so. Like, it's one thing we can do to kind of mitigate the talking moistly, as our prime minister put it, you know, not spreading those droplets. So I say, you know, it's an inconvenience, but, you know, it's, it's the least of what we should be worried about right now, I think. Dave? Yeah, one of many, many, many press conferences that Dr. Kieran Moore has had. He said that uh, even this is before Omicron, he said that he thought that we'd have masks probably well into the spring. So uh, I'm not surprised at all that the, the premier is kind of echoing that. Um, we He said all along that he you know follows the science and he follows what you know the chief medical officer of health says. So uh, the fact that he's now echoing what Dr. Moore has been saying for months is not surprising. Uh, Will, your thoughts? Much the same as Dave. I, I seem to recall Dr. Tam as well, uh, early 2021, saying it's probably going to be well over a year of, of masks and such. And uh, on the point of surprise, definitely not surprised that we're going to be wearing masks. And honestly, if we could pick it up culturally, the same way that it is in uh, Korea and Japan, for example, you know, you have a bit of a stuffy nose, so you wear a mask out in public out of uh, consideration for others. I think that'd be great. So, uh, but you're talking a different thing than wearing masks all the time, because people yeah. are asking that, saying, is this going to be the new normal? We're wearing masks all the time. And you bring up a very valid point that, you know, maybe if you're sick and you're going out, you should wear one. But does that mean everybody else should be wearing one once this pandemic comes to an end? What if you have like a cold sore or you have something, you know, you just need you, your makeup wasn't great that day. You know, yeah. you can put on a mask. <laughs> let let me fine. tell you, there, uh, there are some times that I don't yeah. mind wearing the mask to the grocery store all right <laughs> i don't want to shave exactly <laughs> well i don't have though that problem <laughs> no i wasn't saying that. but no i i uh, yeah that's a that's a valid point you know maybe people would uh would like that there's many reasons for wearing the mask i guess all right let's talk about uh the world cup uh qualifier uh, a lot of excitement around this we just had dr nick modis on he's obviously very excited and was uh, you know instrumental in in helping this uh and help make it happen and such are you surprised by the excitement around this because i said earlier you know we've had the great cup uh, the World Cup qualifiers coming in the outdoor game. I think there's more excitement for the World Cup qualifier than anything. Thoughts, Lee, uh, Diana? I think so. I understand the excitement. I'm quite excited about it myself. But I mean, uh, it is something that I think a lot of people are passionate about, especially uh, in these parts. So I think uh, totally. I think I'm totally not surprised by the by the excitement surrounding this. Dave's going to be like peeking through the fence. Your thoughts? <laughs> Peeking through the fence is not that hard at uh, at, at no, Martin's Field. You can perfect just for that. Get on Cannon Street and you can see the whole thing. Um, no, I think that it's not surprising at all to me. Um, but also, uh, you have to look at at how Canada's been doing on on the on the international um, side when it comes to soccer. We've gone gone up how many places over the last year? Uh, there's a real shot that Canada could end up at the World Cup. Um, and I think that there's a lot of kind of uh, rumblings about that. And so people are trying to get on board. Anything that, you know, there's somebody, that there's a winner, you know, we want to be on top of it. Plus, you know, back in, what was it, November when there was a game in Edmonton and it was the snow, yeah. uh, the snow apocalypse soccer game uh, between Canada and Mexico. I think that was, that was pretty big. And I think Hamiltonians kind of want to get on that bandwa- uh, bandwagon too. Will, soccer fan? Uh, not me personally, but we all know that there's one thing that can drive anyone ever, anywhere in the world crazy, and it's soccer. 
Yeah, you know, like you go. I, I've got friends that have uh, tickets, and and uh, and you know, even years ago, seeing uh, the Toronto FC. I mean, right from the very beginning, there was just an atmosphere there that it's it's completely different from any other sport. It's 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 a phenomenal experience just to be a part of the crowd, let alone you know be a soccer fan and such. And Nick Bondis was saying that hopefully he's hope that w- he's hoping with obviously Tim Hortons Field and the the facilities that we have that this is just the beginning that we could see more of this uh and it'd be nice to use tim hortons field for something other than tie cats games yeah all right we built built it it's there (laughs) all right let's talk about the convoy for the last little minute here uh apparently it's coming through ontario area tomorrow so it could cause some issues on the road uh in regard to traffic and such um you know it's interesting and i just talked to sylvan charlebois who we all see on the news talking about food security and such uh he's not worried about supply for him it's the cost of all of this because you know there were shortages in uh, not only product but drivers before before there was a pandemic has this turned into more of an anti-vaxxer protest or is this about uh, border crossings diana i think it people think that it might have turned into an anti-vaxxer protest but i don't i i don't personally think that's what they're trying to say i think they're no. trying to um i think they're using it to be you know against the mandate but i mean they're the 90 percent of them are vaccinated so i really don't see yeah. it being an anti-vax kind of protest so is it time to move on with this dave yeah, you know, I think it's it's well, I mean it's it's going to be newsworthy especially throughout the weekend once they get to Ottawa and see what happens. I, I think uh, very much like the yellow uh, vest protest, it, it mm. kind of has been co-opted, right, by by um, uh, by a few people who are are saying that it's going to be something that it it really isn't going to be. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what goes on. But uh, like even even like the yellow vest protest, I think uh, they're going to be kind of they're going to fizzle out pretty quickly. All right. Thank you. Table heads, Diana Weeks, Dave Woodard and William Weber all around the big round table as we do every day. Russia seems to have gotten a lot of people's attention with what they're doing along the border of Ukraine. Uh, and at the end of it all, what is to gain from, for Russia for all, uh, from all of this? What are they looking for? Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, professor of political science, Carleton University. He's with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, thank you, Scott. Same to you. So Russia has the world's attention now. Uh, what do they want? Is this all about Ukraine joining NATO? Well, we could just stop right there and say, what do they want? They want the world's attention. So yeah. they, and they're finding it through the uh, particular situation of the Ukraine. That, of course, is just a, an opening comment. Trying to understand what Mr. Putin really wants is very difficult. Uh, every major specialist on Russia that I've, uh, con- I've read about or talked to have said nobody can predict what he wants. But clearly, uh, a few things are uh, on the table. One is what he says he wants. What he says he wants is to recreate the situation for Russia that existed at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union. That is, he wants to go back to the situation of there being no NATO members anywhere near his border, and most certainly that includes Ukraine. And that's what he says he wants. Uh, He wants it in writing that Ukraine will never join NATO, and he wants all the NATO countries that joined from the former Warsaw Pact, basically, and the neighboring states, uh, that's uh, the Soviet Union occupied. He wants NATO gone out of there. That, of course, is a non-starter in terms of what he's really asking for 
uh, in writing are those guarantees. Obviously, Scott, he wants <laughs> he wants other things, and we we should try to uh, work together, you and I, and figure out what they are. How do do Russians support this? Are they behind him? Well, one of the questions is why is he doing this, and why is he doing mm-hmm. it now? And yeah. one of the answers to that is he's doing that because things are getting bad at home. Yeah. Uh, the COVID situation, the economy are down, and he had great uh, support. Uh, a spike in support when he invaded and took over Crimea in uh, 2014. So, he, you know, a, ni- a nice foreign adventure to rally the home troops, particularly after he has just recently crushed the opposition all across Russia. Remember, perhaps you and I talked about it. There was a pushback against Putin uh, that was very, um, very prominent. And uh, as we know, Mr. Navalny was leading that. And uh, Thousands upon thousands of people all across that large country were in the streets shouting, Putin is a thief. He's managed to put that down. He wants to pivot away from that. So one answer to the question is, what does he want? Uh, He does want home support. It's not clear that if this particular venture led to uh, Russian combat deaths, that he would maintain that support. But one answer to the question is always the domestic determinants of foreign policy. What he wants is to... um, to uh, get, regain support at home. But the external is that he does want to recreate the sphere of influence that he thinks that Russia is entitled to. Uh, the third is that he really does want, as you opened up, he wants the world to take him seriously. He wants to be a player in the world. He wants Russia to be taken seriously. And he's achieved all of that. And I think very significantly, uh, one of the main things he wants out of this is to be sure that the democratic consolidation within Ukraine cannot happen. He does mm-hmm. not want Ukraine to become a democratic example uh, where the previous two ago now uh, leaders were pushed out by popular people's movements, the color revolutions. He just helped put down another one in Kazakhstan. He thinks having um, authoritarian governments all around his ring that he in turn can support and control uh, to be the ideal situation and to push the West back so the united states has given a list of options uh, maybe that's not the correct choice of words but basically said they're prepared for either scenario uh that either being negotiation or force uh, how will putin react to that is there what's a win for both here well that's a really good question and that's what everybody's trying to figure out the first thing people want to understand is is what is mr putin's game and he's in a situation where he can keep everybody guessing and that's that's a success in itself. He's calling the shots. What he would take at this point, he's insisting over and over again, uh, this is all Western hysteria. He wants Russia to be portrayed as the victim, uh, not as an aggressor. Uh, He wants to do that on the world stage as well as at home. So the whole question of what will we take to get a a climb down from this? And I think uh, if you go back to Joe Biden's marathon marathon press conference a couple of days Mm. ago, a few days ago now, he Mm. talked about this was passed over, I think, a little too lightly. The first he passed over, what he said in passing was, I'll, I'll be glad, I will meet with uh, Vladimir Putin. I will meet with him. He also said that he's willing to discuss force structures, force structures and strategic stances. And he said it twice. Now, perhaps I'm reading too much into it, but perhaps that's the way out. No, you cannot keep this all centered on NATO, no NATO, no NATO, yes, NATO. NATO cannot be... Uh, 
told that they, they who can they admit uh, sovereign and independent Ukraine has its own choices. But Mr. Biden said, realistically, there's no chance that you know, Ukraine is going to be joining NATO in the near future. We can put that down. But we can talk about alternatives. And my personal hope, it's more of a hope than analysis, is we will go back to what we had in the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, when there was really a severe uh, near confrontation. Both sides backed down out of it, mm. found a way out of it. You know, I'll, I'll take my missiles out of Turkey and you'll take your missiles out of Cuba. But after that, they struck a comprehensive nuclear test ban treaty. So there was or a partial, actually, nuclear test ban treaty. I would like to see out of this a set of security guarantees agreed to by both sides, uh, reconditioning perhaps the post uh, post fall of the Soviet Union force structures in Europe. But let's get some treaties back in there, Scott. Let's get this intermediate range nuclear missile treaty back in, which was there for a long time. If the concern by Russia is that there's going to be missiles brought to within five minutes, as he says, of, of uh, Moscow, and he's going to maybe put hypersonic missiles in the waters around Cuba or Venezuela. Mm -hmm. We have the makings of a deal there. Elliot Tepper with us, political science, Carleton University, and uh, announced uh, just uh, breaking Canada will not send Ukraine weapons but boost cyber support training missions. Uh, Elliot, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. And, and same to you, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Oddly enough, we're talking about Elton John getting it and moving on. I think a lot of us have gone through that or know someone that has. And I think that has changed. And we've talked about this. We talked about this right uh, after we got back from holidays. I could feel the change in the tone compared to before Christmas when everybody but it was hysterical trying to get a boost, hysterical trying to get testing. And then uh, over Christmas, as people uh, got it and such, um, uh, the tone has changed. And a new Angus Reid poll, uh, more than four in five now believe a COVID-19 infection would be mild and manageable. To talk more about all of this, John Rowe, Research Associate with Angus Reid, and with us now. John, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. How are you, Scott? I'm doing very good, thank you. And we're one of the people that got it, and uh, after being uh, vaxxed and everything, in a mild case, and out the other end. But uh, you know, when I came back from from holidays, uh, and you started to uh, f realize that more and more people had experienced the same thing, I really started to see the attitude change. Uh, less about the dangers of COVID, more about the dangers of a healthcare system that needs a, a funding change. But that's another story. How do you explain this change in attitude in, in really just a short amount of time? Well, we uh, we didn't ask about uh, kind of the same question uh, until like, a, or sorry, we haven't asked this for about a year or so, but we had asked in mm -hmm. the past uh, as to whether or not how people would feel if they got COVID, how they thought they would be able to handle an infection. And so we, we offer four options, which are relatively mild, minor symptoms, uh, serious but manageable, like a case of the flu, very severe, worried that they might be hospitalized or possibly deadly, they're very vulnerable to it. And uh, when we asked this in December, 2020, uh, three and five said they believed that it would be mild or manageable, while two and five thought it would be severe or deadly. Now we're yeah. seeing 85% think that it'll be mild or manageable, and 15% will think it'll be severe or deadly. So it's kind of flipped considerably in the last year or so. 
Uh, obviously, we've got mass vaccination rates. Uh, the vast majority of Canadians are, are now fully vaccinated and, and working on to the boosters. Is it that that's making them feel more optimistic or the fact that perhaps now they've just known somebody who's experienced it? I mean, I, I, we, did, we didn't ask, I guess, specifically as to why people would feel that they would handle it a little bit better. But I think that obviously has to play a factor in it because, like I said, when we asked this in December 2020, that was prior to uh, basically anybody having the vaccine. They were just starting rolling out the vaccinations then. And and I think the other thing, too, is that obviously there's been a bit of a narrative about Omicron uh, being a bit more mild, leading to less severe cases than Delta. Of course, the WHO has come out and said, we don't want to call it mild because obviously it's still putting a lot of people in hospital. Uh, But they did say that like studies have shown that it hasn't had as many severe outcomes as Delta had. So are you get the feeling that Canadians and I know you didn't ask this question, but the feeling that Canadians uh, are are feeling, um, you, you know, take what we've learned and it's time to move on. Yeah, I, well, we asked um, earlier in the month, um, we asked about how how many people kind of wanted to move on from COVID. Essentially, is, is it time to end restrictions? Um, and mm. it, it's kind of shifted significantly, I think, in the last little bit i think people like you said have kind of uh started looking i guess that maybe it's time for us to like end restrictions and start kind of i guess living with disease a lot more uh and yeah when we asked that earlier in the month it was two and five say that they agree that it's time to end restrictions and let people self-isolate if they're at risk but still there's a majority of people out there who believe that health restrictions need to continue into the future so it is, I think the opinion has kind of started shifting a little bit. And I think especially you see kind of in our latest data about how people feel or maybe how worried or not they are about actually getting COVID. Uh, and maybe that's that's kind of what the kind of sea change has been. And, and maybe for the last minute, talk about how uh, it has focused more about, uh, Canadians are focusing more uh, on getting the rest of the world vaccinated as opposed to that, you know, holdout of 5 or 10% or whatever that, that won't get vaccinated. Yeah, so we, we asked, uh, uh, we first asked in June last year uh, about where Canada's priority should be. Should it be getting through doses to people and like vaccinating uh, at that point, a lot of children weren't eligible for the vaccine. So like vaccinating children and people who hadn't received the vaccine here in Canada, or should we start trying to get doses to lower income countries? And in June last year, it was 72% didn't want Canada to focus internationally. They wanted the focus to still be here. And now yeah. when we've asked that question uh, just recently, it's now 46% believe that they we should start helping lower income countries get vaccinated, whereas 39% believe we should still kind of continue the vaccination efforts here. John Rowe with us, research associate with Angus Reid and our changing perceptions and attitudes around Omicron. John, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Hearing more and more about the uh, truck convoy that uh, started out west and should be in Ontario uh, sometime tomorrow. Lots of discussion about how that could tie up traffic. Be aware of that tomorrow. Um, but, you know, we've also been talking to supply chain people and, and food supply people and such. Um, and, you know, considering both countries are doing this um, and and the fact that it appears that... Um, 
supply won't be the issue. It's just costs that are going to continue to go up. Uh, the trucking industry is, 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 is kind of managing this. And let's not forget, uh, the majority of truckers, just like everybody else in Canada, the vast majority are fully vaccinated. So is this really about, um, goods moving across the Canada U.S. border or is this become, has this been hijacked by every other special interest group and become, uh, an anti-convoy, a convoy about everything uh, people are angry about. Let's bring in Howard Ramos, Professor, Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology, Dalhousie University, and with us now. Howard, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, I am. Uh, thanks for having me on. And, and I might just make one correction. I'm now at Western University in London, Ontario. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, welcome closer to home then, closer to us. So uh, is this about a border issue and vaccine mandates, or has this become a convoy for those that are anti? Well, I think it's, a, as you were saying, a broad range of folks that are getting together. And uh, on social media, there's been a lot of reports that have linked the convoy, at least the GoFundMe campaign, to uh, the, the Wexit and Yellow Vest folks uh, and so I think that there's definitely part of that. I think some of the people that are part of the convoy are libertarians. Uh, some of them are anti-vaxxers. Some of them are truckers who are worried about their job. Uh, and there's yet other people who are just tired and looking for something to do uh, in the middle of the Omicron wave. So in the end, where does this leave this convoy? Uh, does the protest lose credibility as soon as the extremists jump on board? Well, I think that the, what's become really interesting is the amount of attention that the convoy has gotten. So uh, mainstream media has uh, started doing a lot of coverage of uh, the convoy, which has amplified it and gained greater attention. Uh, conservative uh, party members have been on social media. So Andrew Scheer met the convoy, not just on social media, but in Regina. And you have people like Leslie, uh, Le- uh, Leslin Lewis, who... Uh, ran for the leadership who has been on social media or uh, Pierre Polyev and and a number of others. So there's been a a bit of uh, mainstreaming of it through that. Um, But at the same time, it's really important to remember that it's a convoy that's leaving Western Canada where there's probably more of a base of support for that kind of politic. And and as it moves eastward, um, it it becomes less clear whether there's a, a real base to support that convoy. So um, will this, what do you think the end result will be of this? Because again, both the Canada and the U.S. have decided this is the rule. So even if Canada opens up, it's not going to help anything because the U.S. still has its rule. Um, what's what's the end game here? It's hard for me to comment because I haven't been talking to the organizers of the hashtag or the uh, GoFundMe uh, campaign or, or the people uh, who are in the convoy. But I, I would imagine that uh, the main goal is to get maximum attention. Uh, I don't think that we can put too much stock into the reason that is said to be the reason for the convoy. Uh, You know, your guest, uh, uh, Sylvain Charlevoix, uh, uh, earlier would have noted that the supply chain issues were there before the convoy. As you were mentioning, uh, the vast majority of truckers, even more than the dominant population, are vaccinated. The trucking associations distancing themselves from this. So it's really not about those issues. And and the U.S. is bringing in the border controls and the same policies. So, uh, again, it's it's not really about people's freedoms being lost or, or an ability, inability to uh, have uh, groceries. It's really a, a political issue trying to gain a, a attention. 
Uh, so in the end, especially when you talk about the two different countries and such, nothing's really likely to change uh, coming out of this. Do you, I mean, even the discussion about borders, uh, and it seems the longer this goes, the, the uglier it may get. And by that, I mean, you just have a whole pile of people yelling and the cause is lost. Well, this is what we're going to find out this weekend as the convoy gets to Ottawa, whether, uh, it's going to block off roads, whether they will respect uh, the municipal police or RCMP that may try to move them or OPP. Uh, and, and we also really need to watch and see if they gather uh, bystander support. So uh, Donald uh, Trump Jr. was tweeting today in support of the convoy, uh, and, and it may rally potentially a little bit more base support in, in a more extreme conservative politic. But, you know, the key word is maybe. Uh, you know, if you look at it in, in bigger context, it's not been a winning strategy for the Conservative Party. Uh, they've lost popularity as they've uh, aligned themselves with anti-vaxxers. Uh, they have lost uh, popularity as, as they moved further right. And when you look at the extreme right parties, uh, you know, such as Maxime Bernier's party, it really hasn't had much root. And, and time and time again, as Conservatives have gone further right in an American style in Canada, it's been a losing combination. So it's hard to see what will happen or say what will happen. Uh, we'll find out this weekend. Uh, will people will people look will people look at this Howard and say, uh, well, this is just the uh, this is just conservatives. These are just the conservatives getting out of hand again. This is so they don't want them vaccinated. They don't want this. I mean, can we just say this is a pile of conservatives even when you get, Guy, you know, even though you, obviously you get Andrew Shear out there standing at a truck stop, uh, isn't helping the conservative message in any way. Um, but are people going to look at this? Is this going to be a win for the prime minister? And you know, just like the rock throwing thing, that this is just all the conservatives that are out of hand. I, I would guess that the prime minister will try to frame it that way. And uh, when you have Andrew Shear or Pierre Polyevre endorsing it, or, or you have uh, people like Tamara uh, uh, Lich, who uh, is associated with Wexit supporting it, it skews it that way. But I think that there are more uh, supporters that uh, come from a different varied background, that the the folks who are supporting the truckers uh, are, are not just the ones who are framing it. Why are we so concerned about a small, such a small segment of the population uh, that probably will not get vaccinated anyway? I mean, we're, we should be very proud that we've got the numbers we have. My goodness, they're astounding. Some of the biggest, some of the highest vaccination rates uh, rate in the world, and yet we're concentrating on you know uh, a group of extremists and and looking to divide. Why are we not just moving on as opposed to focusing on this stuff? Well, I, I think that's an excellent question. I'm really happy to hear you raising it. Um, I, I, and I don't want to be overly critical of your industry, but I, I think that that's also part of it. No, the feel free, because I'm a little disgusted in it right now myself, so feel free. Well, you know, I, I think that you know, as the old news adage goes, uh, and it's a bit uh, rude to say, but I'll say it nonetheless, you know, the old news adage is if it bleeds, it leads, or, or if it's going to yeah. be extreme, it's going to be a headline. and. There's a lot in this that makes it a flashy headline. Empty store shelves, uh, yeah. a big convoy from, from the west going east, and, and it, it's, a, it's a, an attention getter. Uh, whether that's responsible or not, uh, you know, I was very happy to hear uh, your framing, which is the real story of this pandemic is 90% uh, you know, plus truck drivers have gotten a vaccine. Uh, 80 exactly. percentage of Canadians have gotten their double vaccination. And people have 
been time and time again uh, doing things for their neighbors and their elders and their kids to make sure that uh, we have fewer people in hospitals. And, and it's been a real story of collective good over the two years, which has been a long time. But we're certainly seeing the differences in this wave where uh, compared to our southern neighbor or other countries, we're faring through this so far uh, relatively well. Howard Ramis with us, University of Western Ontario. Howard, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Oh, my pleasure. You too, and to all the listeners as well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. A government report on Chinese espionage activities in Canada accuses Beijing of engaging in a systematic campaign of intelligence gathering, persuasion, influence, and manipulation against the Chinese community in Canada. Uh, to talk more about this, Sam Cooper, national investigative reporter, author of Willful Blindness, How a Criminal Network of Narcos Tycoons and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West, and he is with us now. Sam, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks for having me. Uh, another great article here, Sam, which you can find on the Global website. Uh, what, so who is being manipulated here? Who is being coerced? Well, uh, these documents that we obtained just uh, were, are, are truly incredible uh, in the way that they, they, they show how deeply Canada's government and security services understand how this, uh, these uh, organizations, in this case called the Chinese Overseas Affairs Office, is run out of uh, consulate, Chinese consulates across Canada, and how they absolutely seek to infiltrate, surveil, all Chinese Canadian communities in Canada. That, of course, includes, you know, Hong Kong Canadians, Taiwanese Canadians. It includes people that I identify as Falun Gong or Uyghur Canadians. It, it includes everyone who has a view on the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing and China, good or bad. But what's the key here is that this intelligence operation run from Beijing is about interfering in all aspects of Canadian society by really uh, trying to uh, surveil, harass and control anyone who comes from the Chinese ethnicity and lives in Canada in a nutshell. So Chinese uh, Canadians, Chinese immigrants that have come here to settle in Canada and start a new life and, and, and what have you, they are being harassed by the homeland. That's what the report says. Uh, it lays out in detail, and the context here is uh, uh, a man who worked for this overseas Chinese affairs office in China uh, was sponsored by his child in Canada for immigration, and the judge said, uh, hold on, you can't be a member of this organization, which evidence shows, evidence from uh, governments around the world, is part of China's increasingly aggressive and expansive intelligence operations in democratic countries which seek to control Chinese Canadian, uh, sorry, Chinese citizens that have immigrated, as you say, to democratic countries. So this man, uh, his, his application was denied. It was claimed by his lawyer that he was a low-level member. Nevertheless, the judge said, you can't work for an intelligence agency and be a member of it. You're a threat and, and come to Canada because you're a threat. 
And uh, what the records showed, more importantly, uh, we found was just how how expansive. Uh, and again, this is incredible stuff. It's hard to believe, but the records say that there are uh, these agencies run out of consulates. They're deeply embedded and trying to get deeper into all communities. And again, uh, they focus their uh, this really uh, espionage. Uh, harassment, surveillance on people of Chinese ethnicity, but they're also trying to uh, uh, turn people of those ethnicities against anyone that criticizes Beijing and the Chinese Communist Party. So uh, really, as some of the community leaders we spoke to said, this is an attack on Canada's democracy and multicultural society. It's trying to divide Canada. Uh, so the the Chinese Communist Party is focusing on Chinese Canadians here, trying to manipulate their thoughts, uh, especially if they are against anything that uh, would be disrespectful towards the Chinese Communist Party. So with this, you know, because there's been chatter about influence in our politics and people getting nominated and people uh, getting uh, voted in in local elections and such. It, it, could this obviously be an influence there? And how people vote, telling Chinese Canadians what to do. Sure, there. Uh, I know from my uh, research, there's absolutely that angle that uh, the Overseas Affairs Office, this report said, works through incentives and disincentives. So it will try to incentivize people within these communities that are under surveillance to uh, do Beijing's bidding, and that could include political fundraising, getting close to uh, Canadian uh, power players in business and politics, running for office. And uh, what do you know? Uh, when when people are elected to office with the assistance and incentive or funding under the table from these organizations, you can uh, very you know quickly see, as intelligence reports will say, that they will be saying we should not criticize the uh, genocide in Xinjiang, or Taiwan should be part of uh, the, should be reunited with the motherland peacefully. Mm. In other words, they will start to advocate in Canadian uh, offices for China's policy. They will not be advocating for what uh, democratic countries around the world are, are standing for. So why don't Chinese Canadians just ignore this? Why don't they just uh, move on? Um, what can Chinese Canadians do if they're being harassed by the Chinese Communist Party? Well, uh, we uh, I, I've heard from uh, CSIS, that's Canada's Security Intelligence Agency. There, They say, look, we are here to protect Canadians. The RCMP says the same thing. Uh, we're starting to hear more from uh, community leaders that say, however, uh, you know, there really isn't the capacity to stand up for, uh, for, for people when they start to get threats that, uh, if you are, for example, uh, protesting about the, the genocide in Xinjiang on a corner outside a consulate and you get a, let's say a text message saying, we know where your mother is. She's dead mm. if you continue to do it. We were told yeah. that by a Uyghur Canadian yeah. community no, leader in this yeah. story. And, and, and look, what can you do? Uh, at, the, at this point, what the advocates say is there's not enough that they can do. They don't think the RCP and the CSIS is investigating this enough. Furthermore, they just don't think the political will in Ottawa is there to really resource these investigations. But uh, obviously, it's an extremely sensitive issue. And people, as CSIS told us, when their family members are being threatened, uh, it takes a lot of courage to speak up and resist this. Uh, this kind of uh, pressure. And remember, uh, people are also being offered incentives. So greed is at play. Money is at play, too. Mm. 
uh, obviously, the Canadian government needs to recognize this. Uh, the article on the Global News site by Sam Cooper and, and Stuart Bell. Canadian government report accuses China of widespread campaign of espionage and manipulation uh, with within the Chinese-Canadian community. Sam, as always, great reporting. Thanks for the time. Be well. We'll chat again. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley uh, Show. I'm I'm, I'm sure he'll break the chain. And, of course, columnist in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I, I I am better than Elton. (laughs) <laughs> good for you that's all you can ask uh really? scott I, you know, I don't know where you know and i rarely know where we're going to go because whenever i write down we always seem to go in the opposite direction but you know i'm getting uh i'm getting a little annoyed at the divisiveness we're seeing in this country uh obviously i, I was just talking uh with a professor in regard to the convoy uh and you know this has become less and less about uh, borders and, and and more about just jumping on a, a bandwagon of anti-vaxxers yet i i do uh support the truckers in the situation and by that i mean that you know we've got to the point where over 90 percent of truckers are vaccinated over 90 percent of canadians are vaccinated and the prime minister constantly focuses on the five to ten percent. He berates them. He calls them uh, misogynist. Calls them racist. Uh, instead of focusing on the ninety percent that have been vaccinated and moving on, Angus Reid poll today: four out of five Canadians think if they get this, it'll be mild, and they'll move on. Uh, is it time to move on, Scott? I- I'm tired of. Uh, of of a leader that focuses on an extreme small percentage of the population that really, at the end of the day, doesn't affect much. What are your thoughts on what we're seeing? Well, just with what you said, it, you know, it just dawned on me, if you are not a white person and you're not vaccinated, are you still a racist? Uh, that's, a great, that's a great question. I don't know. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Or if you're a woman and you're not vaccinated, are you a misogynist? Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah. I don't know the answer. I mean, it seems this is. The, but the focus is, is on the small amount of people who don't dis- who who don't agree with the with the uh, prime minister. And again, we all know mandatory, mandatory. But in Canada, in a free world where there's a democracy, mandatory always has conditions. Always have conditions. So why are we focusing so much? on you know and even the healthcare system it's getting back to where it was so why don't we focus on that instead of the one or two or five ten percent of people who don't agree with the prime minister all right uh i said last night on the show and i said this before and i'll say it again there this is a two-pronged pandemic it's a health situation and it's a political situation Mm -hmm. you can't separate one from the other and so you know what while the vaccines and all that it's you know as you say 90 percent of people in this country have said i want to do it the political side scott is pretty darn easy we look at the numbers and you Mm -hmm. see you know majorities in this country say i'm in favor of what quebec is doing with their if you don't get it you have to pay i'm in favor of restrictions if you're a politician well what's the easy political move to make here's my hook Here's yeah. what I can hang my hat on. Here's what I can keep hammering on, and I'm going to resonate with the with the majority. The problem with that, and the risk that you run with this, and I, and you know, it's it's easy to do this, but sometimes something happens and public opinion begins to shift, 
And, you know, something might come up, and I don't know what it might be, where all of a sudden people get to the point where they go, okay, I, yeah, I got it, enough. And then you become the dripping faucet that people just say, yeah, but you're a one-trick pony. And I yeah. don't think, I think the Prime Minister is pretty safe right now, because I think the majority of the country, clearly from polls, are agreeing with him, and he sees this as low-hanging political fruit that he can just keep plucking. But if that day comes when it gets just to be totally annoying, um, you know, he may run into some trouble. And here's the thing about leaders, and it's not just about the vaccine, Scott. We've seen this repeatedly in, on both sides of the border and other countries as well. All of a sudden, a leader who has been very popular, something will change, and all of a sudden, very quickly, people become incredibly tired of them incredibly fast. Yeah, and yeah. that's when they are. And, you know, the prime minister right now is his, his, his approval ratings are exceedingly low, but he is still prime ministering as if yeah. he had a 90 percent approval rating. But what why would he not? Because what is ever what is ever the cost to him if you stick with the majority movement on this? There is nothing. There's nothing. Absolutely. He always yes, he always seems to chase causes that there is no measurable goal. Well, you can't no tell when you get there. Or, or there's no, there's no, uh, and not just him, but there's no penalty yep. for doing it because you're on the majority side. And, yeah, and exactly. you know, some people would say that's great. And other people would say that's populism. And somehow, see, I've always thought politics is populism. It is. Elected, I agree. But somehow <laughs> populism is a bad word. I know. I've had that discussion. I've had that discussion with professors. Uh, you know, the way you're describing populism, isn't that democracy? I know. I get it. Yeah. Uh, no, I, you know, no. I'm looking at it this way, Scott. I've had it. I'm vaccinated. I'm moving on. And I think the uh, prime minister should fix health care funding formula and stop, you know, crapping on. This is of course way it is. Of course it is. Bad guys yeah. to make villains. And the and the public stupid enough to just buy into it, and, and, and well, I don't understand. Is there any that. is there any reason to believe they're not at this point? Good point, Scott Radley. Coming up next, we'll continue the discussion. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. See you. You too. All right. Thanks to the two wills for producing today, and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the CHML listener, to have the last word. I think, like a lot of Canadians, I'm getting sick of the prices at the pumps. So I'm thinking I should organize my own convoy to protest. That is, if uh, anyone can chip in some gas money. I'm in! Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the ring.